Hello and welcome to Poetry Blokes, the podcast where one bloke likes poetry and the other doesn't. I'm Matthew Adamo, failed novelist, third-rate poet, and now a beleaguered poetry teacher. And I'm Ridge Gochran, a moderately successful engineer and lifelong lover of things that actually matter, like football, cricket, and the ability to make stuff out of wood. I don't hate poetry, but I do think it's a lot of words in a confusing order to say very little. Join us in this series of podcasts as we rummage into the recesses of Rich's mind, pull forth any literary force that may be lying dormant, and see if the world's most literal man can acquire the soul of a poet. He doesn't even believe in souls, so I've got my work out already. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Peace by Rupert Brooke. Now, God be thanked who has matched us with his hour and caught our youth and wakened us from sleeping. With hand made sure, clear eye and sharpened power to turn as swimmers into cleanless leaping, glad from a world grown old and cold and weary, leave the sick hearts that honour could not move and half men and their dirty songs and dreary and all the little emptiness of love. Oh, we who have known shame, we have found release there where there's no ill, no grief, but sleep has mending. Naught broken save this body, lost but breath. Nothing to shake the laughing heart's long peace there, but only agony, and that has ending. And the worst friend and enemy is but death. So, Rich, what's that all about? (laughs) Well, mate, I'll tell you what, bit dark, isn't it? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky to touch on war when, <laughs> without it getting a bit heavy. Do you know, are you good friends with Rupert? I'm a bit worried about him. <laughs> we'll get to what happened to Rupert a bit later on, actually. Oh, will we? Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he seems a bit down. Um, yeah, so, I mean, where to start with this? Last week, you gave me a poem that was about death. This week, you give me a poem. Guess what it's about? Yeah, it's true, actually. I hadn't thought of that. Although, I'll tell, uh, I'll tell you what it's about, Matt. It's about death, mate. <laughs> yeah, death does play a role. I forgot, actually, yeah, that Andrew Marvel was using death as quite a strong incentivizer. Uh, slightly different this time round, I think. Well, mate, I've got some thoughts. I'm going to tell you some thoughts, all right? Hit me with your thoughts. Hit me with your thoughts. So, it's mercifully short. I thought you might like that. But... Even for me, a man of limited uh, ability to interpret these things, there's a lot in there. He's not in a good place. That's what I took from this. What makes you think he's not in a good place? Well, Matt, this is the problem, right? I thought this was supposed to be a comedy podcast. And when you gave me this and I read it for the first time, I was like, what the fliff is this guy giving me this for? (laughs) There's nothing in there for me. There's no, there's no, there's no whimsy. There's no <laughs> old beliefs that are now no longer socially acceptable that we can mock. It's just a guy who, as far as I can tell, is ready for death. He's ready for that sweet embrace of death. He's had enough. <laughs> can I shock you? <laughs> I, I, think, I think there's a lot to make fun of here in that sort of oldie worldie beliefs that we don't really believe anymore. Oh, I think there's you? a lot of material that, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, mate, I didn't pick up on anything. I'll, I'll tell you I'll tell you what I've got, right? So It's going to be a short um, podcast. Put short as one of the series. I mean, it could be, mate, because you gave me this, and I thought, I've got nothing on this. 
So the first thing that I noticed about this poem, right, is that it starts with the word now. Now, comma. God be thanked who has matched us with this hour. And that <laughs> that made me think that he'd been talking for quite a long time before I was involved in this conversation. So like this he, is like this, this is a transcript. It's a transcript and someone sort of cut in towards the end. Yeah, I felt like because I'm guessing we're in the trenches, right? Rupert is sitting in the trench. He's got a bit of trench foot. He's got lice crawling around him. He's he's in you know he's just feeling pretty miserable, pretty down the dumps. Baldrick is there. <laughs> Baldrick, yeah, Baldrick's there. But anyway, so I was imagining oh, sitting there in the trenches, and then I just sort of woke up. Like, oh, now God be thanked, he's matched us with this hour. I was like, all right, mate, shut up. Oh, I see. So you've placed him. So he's, he's in the trenches now, and his God be thanked, who has matched us with this hour, is a bit like he's annoyed about that. Is that what you're saying? Like he's annoyed, like, oh, man, I can't believe you've done this. Yeah, he's like, oh, well done, God. Like, <laughs> sarcastic. Yeah, I thought it was sarcastic to start with. I thought the whole poem was sarcastic to start with. And now, once I read it a second time, I was like, maybe he's not being sarcastic. But anyway, that was that was my first thing. And caught our youth and wakened us from sleeping. Didn't really know what that bit was about. I just breezed past it, didn't care about it. Yeah. And then it got to with hand made sure, clear eye and sharpened power. And that um that made me laugh. <laughs> Sorry, go well, on. Listen to my reasoning. It made me laugh as well, obviously. Well because, <laughs> because I thought he was describing his wash his wash bag. Okay. Hand, I thought it was like a hipster with handmade sure. He's like, yeah, I've got the best. I've got the best deodorant in the market, mate. It's handmade sure. <laughs> and then clear eye. I was like, well, eye drops, obviously. Uh, and then sharpened power for men. <laughs> <laughs> Any self-respecting shoulder, soldier would have uh, eye drops and sharpened power. Yeah, exactly. So I thought, well, he's describing his wash basket. And then wash bag rather and but I thought you know that's probably not true is it it's not really in keeping with the the tone of the poem it's <sighs> I don't really know where to go with this poem Matt. I'm going to be honest with you mate did I read finish, did you finish this poem yeah I read the whole one okay. and I I got to the end I was like that's really depressing so like right if I just give you the general vibe that I got yeah then we can dive into specifics right yeah sure the general vibe was he is fed up he is ready for death. He has got some sort of hang up about cowards in inverted commas. Yes, true. Half, half men. He, in my opinion, is has clearly been jilted at this point. By 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 a lover. By a lover. Okay. And I took that from the line and all the emptiness of love. Mm-hmm. Now, that to me indicates a man who has very recently discovered he is not in love. And so my assumption there is that he has been jilted or or cuckolded by, <laughs> by a half-man, in his opinion. <laughs> yeah, with a sick heart. With a sick heart, with his dirty little songs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, oh, I quite like the sound of being a half-man. Singing dirty little songs, stealing other, stealing other men's women. That's, an, that's like, an awkward letter, isn't it? It's an awkward letter to receive in the trenches while you're shaving and putting your shawl on to say that you've been cuckolded. <laughs> yeah, dear Rupert, I'm in love with a half man. <laughs> He's half a Rupert. We call him Rupert. We call him Rupert. 
<laughs> it's his lower half I'm in love with. <laughs> He's got an absolute monster. <laughs> what I would say so far is you've made a lot of assumptions, and of those assumptions, I'd say one is correct so far. Okay, list me back my assumptions, please. Oh, well, first of all, he isn't in the trench. Okay. In fact, as we can discuss a bit later, Rupert was never never in the trenches. Oh. Yes. Oh, hang on. So I've, I have a little theory on this. Okay. Not a little theory. I, I hadn't picked up on that. I'd imagined him in the trenches. Yeah. And do you know what? Do you know what I've done there, Matt? No, tell me. I've listened to you tell me that it's a war poem, and I've just jumped straight into a trench. I stitched you right up there, haven't I? Stitched you right up. (laughs) You've embarrassed yourself there, Rich, actually, because Rupert Brooke was in the Royal Navy. Oh, okay. Interesting. My favourite of the armed forces. Well, exactly. And I gave you a war poem, and it's got, it's, it's a tenuous link, but there are ships involved. You know, when I think First World War, I don't think Navy. Well, there you go, yeah. I mean, well, it's very much dominated by the, the trenches. But yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that. Let's run through a bit of textual analysis of peace by Rupert Brooke. And let's start with the first line. So now, God be thanked who has matched us with his hour. And yeah, what's our the youth and wake And wakened us from sleeping. Sorry to interrupt you, but I didn't know that this, the first line was still going because poems are stupid. <laughs> you got to the end of the first line, you carried on. You said you are going to read the first line. You got to the end of the first one, and you carried no, on. That's, no, that's true. The first line, that's actually got to be thanked to as much as with his hour. But the the sentence is kind of both together, right? Because the exclamation, there's a comma and then an exclamation mark. So that's the, the sort of the thought is encapsulated there. But you're right, yeah. you got me. I'll give you that. Fair enough. What's with it being his hour? God be thanked who's matched with us with his hour. Well, what, what do you think his hour is? No, no idea. The, the time, maybe, is it the time that he's decided that Rupert's going to get done in? Yeah, well, maybe not quite done in, but definitely the hour in which Rupert Brooke is going to go to war. Right, okay, so he's not already, he's not already at war at this point. No, he is actually describing or referencing the peace before war. Wow, okay. Yeah, go on. Our youth and waking us from sleeping. So he's saying there that I was just knocking about, having a nice time, peaceful, and you've you've wakened us from that from that peace for this hour of war. Yeah, absolutely. And at this point, what would you think about the sleeping and wakened us from sleeping? Is the being wakened from sleep good or bad? Broadly speaking, <sighs> it really depends, doesn't it, mate? He's late for something. <laughs> He's late for his hour. So then we'll, we'll we'll carry on there with hand made sure, clear eye, and sharpened power to turn as swimmers into cleanness leaping. Next word is a big clue. The next word being leaping? No, after leaping is glad. Glad from a world grown old and cold and weary. Right, let me read that again. With handmade sure, clear eye and sharpened power, to turn as swimmers into cleanness leaping. Glad from a world grown old and cold and weary. So I read that and I just glaze over. I just do not care what he's trying to say. <laughs> I just think, mate, just write it down. What are you trying to say? What's he trying to say, man? Put me out of my misery. <laughs> well, who's making his hand sure for matching us with this hour and caught our youth and wakened us from sleeping? So Rupert, he's loving the prospect of war. He can't wait for it. He is like, thank God I'm alive at this time to be selected by God to go to this war. And also... Not only that, but God is making my hand sure and giving me clear eye and sharpened power to turn I mean, like a swimmer, leaping. I wouldn't know about swimmers being athletic and live. Have you seen me swim, Matt? Well, I could barely swim myself. I'm like a stone. 
Yeah, me too. I've got negative buoyancy. Straight to the bottom. Yeah, straight to the bottom. Dead. I hate swimming. Yeah, me too. Awful stuff. I can barely do it. Drag myself through. It's embarrassing. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's move on. I'm ashamed. <laughs> I'm not ashamed. I think people, more people need to talk about these sort of things. I'm not a strong swimmer and I'm proud of it. <laughs> Tell that to Rupert. Yeah. All right. So it's a strange title for the poem, isn't it? Peace. He's not about peace at all. He's out. He wants to go. He wants to go and run cold steel through the Hun. Oh, he absolutely does. He is all about that. Uh, but let's move on to that point. The one not only correct, but very insightful point that you made earlier about half men. What's that about? So half men, cowards, half men yeah. equals cowards. Turning yeah. this into an equation. And they're dirty songs and dreary. So he's just given up on that sentence there. Dreary what? What's, what's dreary? <laughs> so in my mind, because I was still in the trenches when I was reading this, he got distracted by something. Like the whistle went for him to go over the top and he was like, oh, I'll finish this later, put it down. Survived, probably, came back. Probably the, letter about, probably the letter about Roop, wasn't it? He read the letter about Roop and he's like, do you know what? I can't even bother. <laughs> <laughs> just been, I've just been cucked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or I thought maybe somebody offered him a brew. I was like, I'll fin- again, finish this later. I won't worry about that. <laughs> or my final reasoning was that somebody shot his fingers off. <laughs> mid-poem, yeah? Just mid-poem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he, was, he was writing flamboyantly, and his penmanship led to his fingers to drift above the top edge of the trench, and a sharp-eyed German took them clean off. Well, what about these sick hearts? What sort of feeling does that evoke towards these half-men? They've got sick hearts, apparently. I mean, he thinks very little of them. I'm guessing he thinks that they, in some way, ill to not feel the same sort of fervour that he feels for killing people. He thinks that they are Romans, which is clearly insane to not, you know, to not want to go and kill people. You, you know, you're probably more sane than the guy who's absolutely up for it. Yeah. Absolutely gagging to go. And It's a bit weird, isn't it, as well, that, that sort of dehumanising aspect of calling them half-men. So it's exactly what you're saying, really. It's like you're you're a half man because you're not up for the war. So I'm dehumanising you by calling you only half a man and, like, directing a jibe at you and your masculinity. Whereas old Rupert over here, yeah, he can't wait to run somebody through or uh, pop a shot at someone. Um, Tell you what, Rupert, do you know who Rupert would hate? Cis millennials. (laughs) (laughs) He would absolutely hate them, wouldn't he? Would he call them half? Well, what would he call them? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about this, Rich. <laughs> you have to bleep that one. <laughs> I have to say, I love the bleeps. They really add something. Yeah, I, I do quite well to keep them to a minimum. Only one in the last podcast. Um, what about sorry, the little but, emptiness of love? What's about yeah, the so, little yeah. emptiness of love? I figured he'd been jilted in some way. But I, I don't know, because the only real mention of it... So he thinks that they're staying at home because... They've got a little love nest on the go. They'd rather shag than fight, basically. Oh, you do, you're doing so well. As we go through this poem, and you start out with like nothing at all, and you're like, I don't even know what it is. I don't, are these words? Who knows? Is that a sentence? <laughs> I don't know where it ends. And as we go, as we progress, bit by bit, it, it all comes out. I have to say, I have given you a very cryptic poem here, I, w- I will admit, but it's quite juicy, as, as we will dig into a bit deeper. Um, this is one of the most cryptic lines of a cryptic poem, I think. I think the little emptiness of love is sort of implying, or he's trying to imply that his love of probably God and, you know, going wild on the war front 
these types of love are just better or, or more potent than just romantic love or love of staying at home and going to the pub with your mates. He's sort so of implying, he rather... he's, he's implying their hearts are defective. They have sick hearts. And then he's saying that there's little emptiness of love. So it's almost like they just love the wrong things. I he love would, the right thing. He would rather kill and maim than have sex. <laughs> I will just take this moment to point out that we have, that sex hasn't been suggested so far in this poem. But yeah, he's definitely saying, he's definitely saying that going to war, possibly ordained by God, this, this here war, right. um, is favourable than staying home and being a half man with a sick heart and loving the wrong things. Yeah. I'm actually not, I'm actually not going to judge him at this point because I've done <laughs> only 50% of Loving and killing, and I'm not going to tell you which 50%. Oh, it's the loving. Um, oh, you ruined it. Yeah, sorry. I'm guessing he's the same. If he, if he, well, again, I don't know. I can't say for sure, but I'm, I think sex is better than killing. But like I said, I've only done 50% of that. Whereas he may have done only 50%. Maybe he's only killed. Maybe he's done neither. Maybe this is all just a fantasy in his mind. <laughs> well, brings us on to the next line. Oh, we. Who have known shame, we have found release there. That just made me think of having a hangover, that line. Oh, good. Uh, interesting. Evocative. Why is that? The shame. The shame. Because element. as I, yeah, as I get older, I find the more I, the more I drink, the, the worse my hangover is. And it's no longer a case of me just not being able to move. It's that I wake up with unbelievable shame about things that I haven't even done. I've drunk with you before and I think <laughs> I think that I think that applies equally to both of us. But the funny thing is when when we were younger maybe back at university 10 or 15 years ago or whatever I, at the time I thought we were probably just really funny. So there was nothing to be ashamed of because we were just so funny. And I imagine now if we if those days we lived with social media or videoing on your phone yeah we we would see a lot more evidence of us being not very funny at all uh quite embarrassing and um yeah committing some sort of shameful act such as dancing like a moron well having sick yeah having your top off in a club when you're 24 is kind of sexy and cool and when you're 32 it's kind of sad um <laughs> and a matter for the police and the matter for the police. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> you're, you're in the self-checkout at Sainsbury's. <laughs> please, yeah. sir, please put your shirt back on. Yeah, and you know, waking up with a with a kebab on you, just sort of spilt down your front and in your bed, and your wife looking at you saying, why am I... Why did you buy me a kebab? That's probably what she'd say. <laughs> They're just saying, that's disgusting, please. Stop bringing kebabs to bed. Um, <laughs> Have you actually done that? You sound like a man who's talking from experience. I am, mate. That's. I mean, that's. This is the one line in the poem that made me feel something. I I read this line. I was like, oh yeah, he's probably hung over at this point. He's talking about shame. This is, um, a, this is a tremendous insight into your mind, isn't it? And the associations that lie within. So we're reading a First World War poem called Peace. At which point he's just after a line about the emptiness of love and mentions the word shame, your mind goes straight to getting into bed with your wife, drunk with a kebab. Yeah, that's where it went. <laughs> As I'm sure he intended. <laughs> so rich and rewarding poetry, isn't it? Stay <laughs> with it. 
Advertise with us to reach an audience who love to laugh are obviously very cool and sophisticated and have immaculate taste. I mean, they're here listening to this gold, right? Go to poetryblokes.com forward slash advertising to advertise with us today. So the next line, oh, we who have known shame, we have found release there. I think the there actually moves the poem on. And I think he's actually talking about war now. But again, he hasn't made it very clear. It's a bit challenging. But there are reasons. There are reasons for that. Right. So what? Sh- so he thinks that kind of love is shameful with you there, right? He must have done some dirty stuff. Terrible stuff. Kebab in Absolutely the bed. Absolutely awful stuff. Kebab in the bed. Um, and we found release. So we don't have to worry about that kebab in the bed kind of love anymore. We can go off to war and forget about like so, basically, he's doing the equivalent of a midnight jump out the window, but he's going to go to war. Yeah, he is like, I cannot wait. He's like, oh, this kebab in the bed, shame with me and the lads. It's rubbish. It's inferior. I shouldn't be doing that. But I can't wait to run to war, to this ordained holy war that I get to go to. And I'm so thankful that this has come around at this time <laughs> of my life when I can go. He is all about that. And he goes on and said this war where there's no ill no grief but sleep has mending so he's saying actually his view of war and bear in mind I've mentioned that this is it's not before the war it's the very early days of the war it's 1914 or 1915 I think he writes this one and he's on a ship so he hasn't quite experienced the terror of the trenches he's still thinking of war as being some sort of old school Victorian or Edwardian colonial affair where it's all, you know, British troops on horseback, where he hasn't really engaged with the modernisation of warfare that brings all the, the horrors of trench, the trenches. So he's thinking, he's thinking it's great. He's telling everyone it's absolutely great. Yeah, when we get over there, lads, we can have an absolute riot. We have an absolute riot, and then we get to sleep at the end, and it mends us. Yeah. So, because we've been undertaking so many laborious activities, warlike activities all day, and that's great because you're occupied doing this amazing thing and you just go to bed and it mends you. Part of the time, doesn't it? Yeah, but absolutely. And the only thing that's broken is the body. (laughs) It's his next, naught broken, save this body. Nothing's broken, just the body. But then he's saying lost but breath. So is he not just saying, like, nothing's broken, I'm just a bit out of breath. Just, I mean, it's tiring, killing. Well, Hard work, good you graph. Assume, you assume because you you've already said that you you know you've only engaged in the loving and not the killing. Yes, it's true. I'm adept at neither. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, essentially that is what he's saying. He's saying, don't worry. The only thing that breaks is your body because of all the hard work, and uh, you only lose a bit of breath because you're panting because of the hard work, and that comes back. So no worries. Mm. And there's nothing to shake the laughing heart's long peace there. So in fact. You feel peace in your heart because you're doing all this wonderful work for the war effort and you, you're exercising your body and having a lovely sleep at the end and there's a bit of a, <laughs> a, there's a bit of aerobic respiration. And yeah, but not only that, your, your laughing heart has long peace. Get fit and have fun. <laughs> That's Rupert Brooks' tagline. That's his motto for this. This is essentially the back cover to his exercise DVD. Yeah, I, 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 I wonder what the line is for making jokes about the First World War. I mean... It's it's a fine line, isn't it? <laughs> well, that's why when you sent this to me, I thought you were trying to do me in. I was like, well, how is this going to be comedy? But we'll let other people be the judge of that. 
Well, the, well, the final two lines bring it to a close. Oh, but only agony, and that has ending. And the worst friend and enemy is but death. So he sort of like, he goes to two extremes there, really. He's like, don't worry, it's absolutely great over in this war. You do loads of fun war activities, and then you get to go to bed afterwards, and you feel refreshed. Yeah. And the only risk is agony. But don't worry about agony, because agony it ends. ends. And by the way, the thing that ends agony is death. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's what he's saying here. And it's your, death is your worst friend, and also your enemy. Do you know what this guy is? Indecisive. <laughs> <laughs> He's an indecisive fundamentalist. Yeah, he, he is actually, and that's. Uh, you should be on some sort of watch list. We're going to touch on that later because that's one of the reasons why I picked this actually. But what I just want to finish off on the weird thing that the, the, probably the thing that jumped out at you when you first read it was the death connection. Yeah, and you may have noticed that he he personifies death because he calls it a friend. And he also capitalises death. So it's obviously a big focus for him, this death. And from the basis of the rest of the poem, you would say, I think he is almost looking forward to dying honourably in the war. Yeah, I picked that up. I, he seemed very happy with the idea of dying. However, when I read it, I felt like it was just like a reluctant acceptance that he was going to die. It was like, because in my mind, he'd been in as we previously touched on, in my mind, he'd been on the trenches for oh, well, like a year. Because I, I did read it, it was in 1915, so he couldn't have been there that long. But a year, in a, a year in a hole in the ground is a long time. And I thought he'd been like, I've had enough. I don't mind. Just get get me out of here. Death, if that's the only route out of this, this place, I'll take it. Little did I know, he hadn't even got there yet. <laughs> Well, actually, I think this is a good, uh, probably a good moment to move on to a bit more of the structural stuff, which I think hopefully that my explanation thereof will reveal some things to you um, about the poem and why it's quite interesting. Um, I'll be the judge of that. You, you and the listener, <laughs> the one listener. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this poem, I don't know if you notice how how many lines do this poem have? I didn't count them. That's not something I commonly do. I can count them now if you'd like me to. Yeah, count them out loud. Sure. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 lines. Do you remember maybe, maybe you don't, but do you remember from school? Maybe yes, Shakespeare. Special type of poem has sonnet lines. Bingo. See, it's there. It's, it's there. It's inside. It's deep down. Yeah, I went to school. You went to school, did you? Uh, okay. <laughs> it, it, it is indeed a sonnet. It is a type of sonnet that uh, you may not have heard of. It's called a Petrarchan sonnet, after Petrarch. Who, he was um, generally considered to be the person that sort of invented the sonnet, as it were, or at least popularised it. Shakespeare, of course, went on to create what is known as the Shakespearean sonnet, and is the one that most people in England or the United Kingdom are more familiar with, because obviously uh, Shakespeare has a lot of impact. The structure is... A Petrarchan sonnet is formed of an octet and then a sestet. So an octet is eight lines, and then a sestet is six lines. The reason there are these two parts of the poem is that the octet, the eight lines at the beginning, they tend to set up a problem or set up um, a narrative in the poem. And the sestet, the final six lines, reply to that first bit. And we sort of see that interplay between the two sections in this poem when Rupert starts talking about 
where he makes that odd shift between the little emptiness of love and then he starts talking about we have found release there, but he doesn't mention where there is. And what you see here is he's setting up home, essentially, for people who are against the war. So he's talking about the time before the war and the gearing up to it or the concept of it. And then this final, in this sestet, this final six lines, he's talking about the war itself. So there's there's the progression there. It's sort of the, the first eight lines of the setup and the, the last six lines of the, the sort of response or the answer. I did look at the rhyme scheme. I think it's um, a non-standard rhyme scheme for a Petrarchan sonnet because it seems to go A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, G, E, F, G. The rhyme pattern normally in sonnets follows either two or three different patterns. You know what? But I didn't even pick up on the fact that it rhymed those rhymes. I've just seen that now. If they don't happen near enough to each other, and you're like, ooh, that rhymes. What's the point of it? Uh, well, I mean, that's a big question. I mean, the point of rhymes, I suppose, is emphasis, is to make you em- emphasise certain things. So, like, in this poem, hour and power are emphasised, and then sleeping and leaping. <laughs> so he's emphasising power hour. Power hour, yeah. So your power but- hour is in, in my word, Matt. Is it just you start caning drinks? Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what it is. You finish, work, you finish work, you have a power hour to catch up with anybody who has been drinking before you. That's 6pm is when you just go into a cupboard, isn't it, in complete darkness, and you just crack open several cans and you just knock them back, don't you? That's exactly. You know that my favourite way to drink is on my own in the dark. In the dark, so, yeah. Yeah, just to reset my brain. Yeah. Be ready I, for I- I learnt long ago never to look you in the eye while you're drinking. <laughs> it's like um, it, it <laughs> it's like if you walk past a tiger cage or something at a um a zoo, um, a terrible zoo that has tigers in cages, which I don't support. But uh, you know, you just don't look at it because you know it's going to enrage that animal, and that's yeah. exactly the same with you. I also have the same thing when Arsenal play. I don't um, I never look you in the eye or in the face it's when best Arsenal not, play. It's best not to be. It's like yeah. Like you don't go into a lion's cage when it's hungry. Yeah, or when it's <laughs> trying to play a Europa League game. Yeah. <laughs> I never want to be in the blast zone, put it that way. Uh, yeah, so these two sections of the poem set things up and sort of answer them. But the other the other interesting thing I thought here was um, if it's 14 lines and it's a sonnet and therefore it's sort of talking about love or devotion or generally what those what sonnets are all about, well, they don't have to be. The other major sort of character, if we like, is God. And it made me think that this reads a lot like a psalm from the Bible. And then when you look at the poem with with those eyes, as it were, you look at lines like uh, when he talks about the swimmers. So he says, to to turn as swimmers into cleanness sleeping. That's one of the lines that I just brushed over. Yeah, it's an interesting one now, I think, if you look at it from the perspective of biblical Christianity, because now these swimmers who are into cleanness leaping, it's quite an odd phrase, isn't it? Because it sort of comes out of nowhere. All of a sudden you're talking about, to begin with, you're talking about God and how he's steadying your hand and giving you a clear eye. And then then you're turning as a swimmer into cleanness leaping. Yeah, that's why I brushed over. I was like, what is he talking about? Why is he talking about this? But they're glad to leap into this cleanness because the world has grown old and cold and weary. I think that... That uh, that I can relate to. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think we can all relate to that right now. That cleanness that they're leaping into, I think, is is a metaphor for a baptism. God, oh. is, God is steadying them, and then they're these, these 
mythical swimmers are jumping into that cleanness, which is the baptism. So they go into the water uh, and are sort of baptized towards this almost holy, holy war that uh, Rupert Brooke wants to be a part of. And they leave behind the old world of the half men with their sick hearts. These swimmers are not part of that world anymore. I mean, <laughs> Matt, it's, it's interesting. It's not funny. <laughs> it isn't funny. It's really dark, this boat. Well, you keep saying it's dark, but I actually don't think it's dark at all. I think it's... Well, it's not dark about a guy who's longing to kill people. It's well, like the letter of an insane person. Well, th- this leads me on quite neatly to one of the major... Um, motifs of the poem, I suppose, and, and a lot of war-related poetry before the First World War, um, they embody the concept of jingoism. Have you ever heard of jingoism? I've heard the word, never really known what it meant. Okay, well, jingoism is... Uh, it's not related purely to First World War poetry or anything like that. Um, it's just that these that sort of era was closely linked to jingoism, which is an attitude of nationalism or an unwavering belief in uh, one's country or religion or belief structure uh, and the value of that and ultimately its rightness or correctness. So jingoistic poems are poems that put forward your nation or your religion or your beliefs and say, these are really, these are really the right beliefs or this is really the best nation. Um, and, and Rupert Brooke and his poems are closely associated with jingoism. Um, it's come back into vogue a bit, that, hasn't it? That is one of the reasons why I picked up this poem. I know it's not the funniest poem to look at, but there are lots of parallels, I think, between the attitudes here and some of the attitudes that we might see in society today, like you say. Brooks' poems are associated with jingoism because they often have highly romanticised visions of, of war, and they also valorise England and English values. Now, the tricky thing here is that we're looking at this poem from, you know, almost 100 years in the future, this poem happened 100 years in the past, as it were. So to a certain extent, it's difficult for us to relate to what he is saying. And that, that's basically what happened here with, with your reading of the poem, is that that element of jingoism was so far from your mind that you didn't really pick up on it and you went straight to the trenches because that's what we learn about the First World War. But I wanted to pick up on this because, like I said, Brooke didn't really see any of the trench warfare. He um, was on a boat, you mentioned it to me. So he was in the Royal Navy, was he? He was in the Royal Navy, yeah. He was um, uh, Rupert in charge Brooke. of poems. Rupert Brooke was a, uh, a quite a dashing and handsome chap who was a sub-lieutenant, I think, in the Royal Navy. His poetry is known for his naive and simplified view of, of what one, uh, what we know became the war to end all wars, as it was also known. What a thing to be known for. Yeah, well, the, the poor, naive guy. Well, the poor beggar got um, he, he died in in February 1915. Um, because he got septicemia as a result of a mosquito bite. <laughs> oh, what a way to go when you've been talking up the glorious war. Yeah, getting bitten by a mosquito and just dying, uh, and then being uh, buried on a Greek island, I believe. Is it? Oh, nice place to be. Yeah, it looks like a lovely place. Buried anywhere. But, but I mean, that must be quite difficult for him, though, as a man who loved England, the jingoism, didn't even make it back here. Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? He didn't make he didn't make it back, and he he didn't actually see any of the horrors, and uh, just went on a boating holiday for a year. Yeah, and took one in the ankle or whatever from a mosquito, cheeky mosquito. But Brooke really, <laughs> Brooke really remains, I think, one of the last like vestiges of old Victorian or Edwardian values. Uh, Brooke's poems are in stark contrast to those written by other poets who did see trench fighting. 
So, for example, if you look at Sigrid Sassoon or Wilfred Owen, they will often talk about the horrors of war. You don't see that in Brooke's poems. Brooke, Brooke represents probably quite a large swathe of English society in pre-World, pre-First World War English society who thought fighting for your country was the ultimate thing that you could do. And were actually, like Brooke was saying, looking forward to it because all they'd ever know really was these quote-unquote successful colonial encounters. So in a way, he's got he's got quite... There's a sadness with Rupert Brooke because you you could sort of laugh at the silliness of it all. But he comes he comes across like a a callow lad from the countryside. Yeah. And the world sort of changed without him and he never saw it. He's just sort of trapped in this lost idyll before the so, reality took over. How did he become... How did he become famous then? Why is he well known? I think uh, he became famous. Um, well, he was already sort of he was already a poet, to be honest. So he was already sort of known. And then this obviously came at the end of his life. But he was also very j- jingoistic. So it was sort of feeding into that group of people who also felt jingoistic and felt like they wanted to espouse nationalistic beliefs about England and they were very much into it, as most of society was at the time. Uh, and also, like I said, he was sort of this dashing like. He travelled around the world and uh, was very edu- well educated and all that. But he's he is famous in our sort of mentality because he is so different from the other war poets because of his naive nationalism. Versus Sassoon, for example, who in particular um, was extremely bitter and scathing about war in general and the horrors he saw. And I wanted to, as we said, like not not the most, not the funniest poem in the world at all, but an interesting one when you consider it potentially against today and the turning of changing of society and attitudes in society of how quickly things can change. You know, with the First World War between you know 1910 and 1920, extremely different times, and you could potentially say that in, in a very different way. But 2010 and 2020 were a very different, or 2000 and 2010. Yeah, because 2010 was. Oh no! Actually, twenty ten is a very sad year for for us. The year that we left university, and mm. thus started real life, which everybody knows is worse than your fake student life. Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely take out a loan to go to the pub. To <laughs> 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 do that in an instant. Yeah, I willingly got into thousand pounds, thousands of pounds worth of debt, just so I could just large it up and play FIFA for six hours a day. And what a life it was, and I wouldn't change a thing, even though I'm still paying off that debt to this day. I think you were always uh, a bit disappointed after university when you learned that you, you, you couldn't just wear pants around other people. You had to wear trousers. I can now, though, can't I? Because it's lockdown. I'm back just me in the pants once again. Just me in the pants. <laughs> do, you, do you pop anything on top for those video calls? or? Uh, no. People have to accept me for who I am. Oh, we've, we've all got nipples, Rich, so yeah, why not? <laughs> Free the nipple. Free the nipple. Well, how, how do you feel about this poem now? I've explained it a bit more. How have you changed? Well, take me through this roller coaster of emotions that you've felt. How have I changed? Right, so how have I changed? I, I mean, absolutely flabbergasted that I can read something and get it so wrong. And this further reinforces my point that poets are not clear and concise in their communication. They wouldn't. They wouldn't do well in the world of business. Uh, I once again, you've got a poet who I re- I don't think we get along. I don't like him on a personal level. I don't think he'd like me. I think he'd win you over quite quickly with his nationalism. I think he'd start talking about a ship, and you'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm 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 down with this. I think once, well, yeah, if he did ships, if we started talking about ships, I'd be 
obviously I'd be on board. But really, my interest in ships ends in 1850, and it's it's the wood, isn't it? It's the, it's wood, the wood. It's the wood. It's the wood I'm into. Yeah. Um, I just think they're very beautiful things with a lot of. It's, it's the only thing I I would consider that might have a soul, but let's not go into that. So that's for another day. Um. Anyway, do you want to hear my my poem, my summary? I absolutely want to hear your summary. Please give me the summary. I'm very intrigued to hear what it's going to be like now after this discussion we've just had. So, Peace by Rupert Brooke. Thanks for the wake-up call, God. I've been <laughs> wasting my life sleeping and being cool. Life is shit anyway. Full of singing cowards who've been shagging my girlfriend. I'll just <laughs> sod off and die then. <laughs> the end. And in a way, yet again, you've somehow encapsulated it, but from a completely different angle. <laughs> cool. Um, genuinely, Matt, I've forgotten quite a lot of what you said already, but I didn't know it was a sonnet. I didn't know that Petrius? Pat- Pat- oh, Pat- Pat- so close. You've got a bit Greek there, but Pat- Petra- Petrarch. 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 Yeah. Didn't know about him. Uh, didn't know about the old eight and six. Yeah. There's lots. There's lots that I've learned. I mean, I've got a, I've got a terrible headache from listening to it because it's so alien to me. But genuinely interesting. Thank you for sharing. Well, thank you very much. Uh, continuing our somewhat nautical theme, next week we will be looking at the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Do you have a well-known poem you'd like us to discuss? Or maybe you've written your own engineer's overview you'd like to share. And if you have an embarrassing poetry-related story, then you definitely have to tell us all about that. Go to poetryblokes.com forward slash submissions now to let us know all about it, and you could play a part in the next show. This podcast is created and hosted by Matthew Adamo and Richard Gochran. Our theme music is Press Start by The Laszlo Project. Buy their music by going to bandcamp.com and searching The Laszlo Project.